Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. To Kishore, and uh, thanks to the band as well, man, what a morning. How good it is to be back here. It's good to see, see everyone again. Last week was fun in the park, but it's really good to be back and just being able to full volume worship the Lord. Um, Family, I want to welcome everyone again together with Tuki. Um, It's great that you can join us this morning if you're visiting or just uh, checking us out or friends of friends. Um, It's awesome to have you here this morning. My name is Reinhardt. I'm the pastor at Red Door Church. And it's been a phenomenal series as we've been diving into the Lord's Prayer, seeing how our prayers should be built as we come to worship and as we come to pray to Jesus. Um, super excited for the next series as well. Uh, that's going to be lit as well, so don't, don't miss it. Um, make sure that you guys come next Sunday as well. Family meeting is going to be good as well. It's good to have some people back to... Um, Say goodbye to others. Um, for those who haven't seen, Yanni and Kerry just slipped into the back, so they're here this morning. You guys can say hello to them. Kerry is they're off to Canada after this, and so you guys can make sure to greet them and say hi to them. It's good to have the Venturas back from Mexico, Maria and the kids. It's great uh, to have visitors here from the States as well. Um, it's just a joyous morning, even on a long weekend, to see so many people and just excited to be back and to spending time with one another. And even more than that, so that we can come under God's word this morning. And so I want to pray for our hearts right now, that even as we quiet down and even as we settling into the sermon, that this wouldn't be routine, but rather that we would once again truly want to see who and what God is and what he wants to reveal to us this morning. So let me pray for us. Father God, we, we thank you. For this amazing prayer. We thank you for your word. And we do pray that you would continually move and work through your word in our hearts that are so fickle, that are so distracted, Father. And even as we're going to talk about a very real enemy this morning, we pray that even as we are aware of the enemy, that even looking at the enemy, we would once again be in awe, not of the enemy, but of who you are and Jesus, what you've come and done. And so, Holy Spirit, move among us. Do your work. Amen. We're in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. If you've got a Bible, or if you can unlock your Bible, we can go to Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Jesus speaking to his disciples, even as he's teaching, as they ask him, how should we pray? Jesus responds and then says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, even as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. This is the word of God. Family, I'm starting this morning for the sake of our visitors as well with an American example just to draw them in, make them feel at home um, here in Africa. But it's um, a bit of a history lesson. In 1940, 
was a very uh, turbulent year for the world, even as we saw that the Second World War was brewing and war was developing over in Europe. However, because of the first great war, the First World War, we see that America or the United States didn't really have a great appetite to get involved with this war as well. Uh, the first war was very costly both in economic sense and also in life. And so a life that was lost. And so as long as could, President Roosevelt actually tried not to get involved with the Second World War. And it was under this guise that the Japanese actually used the apathy of the United States government to situate themselves in such a way that they could launch under the guise of cooperation and peace a surprise attack on the naval base of Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Many of you have seen the, the film, but uh, what definitely happened in this attack on the United States is that the Japanese were able to seriously damage the U.S. Navy fleet, and so by almost disabling them to actually become, if they wanted to, involved with the rest of the World War. This was one of the most intense attacks and the disasters that the United States has experienced up to that point, which has led many to, after that event, ask the question, how could they let this happen? How could they let an enemy that is so far away in Japan get that close and launch this preemptive attack without anyone knowing about it. And as they started peeling back the layers, they noticed that three different things were happening or that actually caused this event. The one is that the states actually did decrypt a message from the Japanese saying that an attack was imminent. But because of communication barriers, the message was delivered an hour late after the attack had already happened. The second was that they weren't as alert to an imminent attack. And so one of the radar stations at Hawaii or close to Pearl Harbor actually picked up this fleet of Japanese planes that were heading towards the harbor, but they couldn't believe that this was real, and so they disregarded that and said that it was a flock of birds. And the third most devastating result of why this happened is that America believed or had this belief in themselves that because of their stature and who they were as a country, that they didn't really have any enemies. And that the Japanese were incapable of actually launching such an attack. Creating that apathy that just made them the perfect target. It's such a terrible event, but actually such a great lesson for us today as we reflect on this. And we've got to recognize and understand how important it is to know who and what your enemy is. Rightly understanding what you're up against or in what battle you're involved with is almost the start of the road to victory. And so Christian, I want to ask you this morning, or maybe you're just visiting, you're not even sure about Christianity. I want to ask you, do you think that you're involved with a battle right now? Who do you think your enemy is at this stage? I think there's many smoke screens out there that takes our eye off the ball that we think that we're in a battle, but not even, we're not even identifying the right battlefield. Some of us think that the real enemy is your boss or maybe your professor or the studies or your life circumstances. That's the enemy. We think that the battlefield that we are involved with is one of comfort and joy. 
Just make sure that you orient your life and do everything that you can to live a comfy life and to have a life that's full of joy. And these are good things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those things, but what the smoke screen is or the guise at this stage is that it's convincing us that this is the primary battlefield. This is the thing that you should fight for and be involved with. And so again, Christian, I want to ask you this morning, what is our battlefield? And who is the enemy that we're up against? Looking at the historical figure of Jesus, and this is undeniable. Whether you believe in Christianity or not, the historical Jesus truly lived. And one of the things that he was utterly convinced of was one, that we are in a very real battle, and two, that there is a very real enemy. Hence, even as Jesus is giving his disciples this template of how they should pray, how they should come to the Father, he includes this last line, which is very much warlike, battle-like language. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's what we'll be chatting about today. A little bit of context if you're joining us for the first time. A beautifully constructed prayer, basically seven categories that we're going through, and a treatise of how we should view God and how that view of God should actually influence the way that we pray. And so the prayer starts with these four theological pillars of who God is. The fir at first we see that God is good. He is this father. He's this relational figure that actually invites us to have this relationship with him and to trust him. Secondly, we saw that God is glorious. He is this holy being who deserves to be hallowed. And thirdly, we saw that he is great. God is in heaven. He is seated above all thrones and principalities and powers. No one is above him. There's nothing beyond him. Fourthly, we saw that God is gracious, that his kingdom that came in Jesus is one of grace and mercy. And so his kingdom that comes is the realm of grace. And after we witness these four theological pillars that should always inform us in the way that we pray, we see that we have three petitions as we come to God. Firstly, we asked that God would provide that he would give us and supply in our daily needs and our daily bread. Secondly, we see that God should pardon our sins as we pardon those around us, that we can anew be plugged into the gospel and receive his mercy and grace. And lastly, we end off today seeing that we pray for God's protection, that he would lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. Let's jump in. Listening to this, it seems pretty straightforward. Um, Lord, just don't lead us into temptation. I don't want any of that. Uh, take the evil away, and then life is good. Smooth sailing, easy job, let's go home. And yet, again, understanding the definition of words is really important as we read the Bible. Um, but I want to make a side note just in the beginning of this. I never want to give the impression that you actually need to be a biblical st scholar to understand definitions of words in the Bible. We're going to talk about a Greek word today that is used for temptation, the word Perasmus. However, reading the Bible and the context of the Bible will always be enough for any of you to understand what the Bible says. And so as we have, um, we're not always clear about what words or meanings mean, the longer we read the Bible, we see that the Bible actually interprets itself. And so don't live under the lie that you actually need to be a Greek 
scholar or a theological learner to know what the Bible says. The Bible is for everyone and is written in such a way that it becomes self-explanatory the longer we read it and the more we read it together. However, for us this morning, because we don't have time to read the whole New Testament, we're just going to spend some time in two definitions. What is meant by when Jesus talked about temptations and what is he talking about when we talk about evil? So first up, lead us not into temptation. This is the Greek word parasmos, and it can be used in two different ways, and our English Bibles actually translates it as two different words, but it's one single word. The first meaning of the word temptation is the one that we're more familiar with. It is the meaning that to entice someone, or to provoke someone, or to lure someone into sinning, into not giving the glory and honor where it's due to God by rather seeking it in functional saviors, seeking our acclaim or our accomplishments and the things out there rather than in the acceptance that we have with God. This is the one that we know. But there's a second meaning to it as well. This Greek word parasmos actually means to put something to the test by trial or experiment. It's almost a scientific term where you would prove something. Or even literature, you would proofread something. You would make sure that it actually can stand up to the rigors of whatever you designed that specific thing to be for. And we see this Greek word actually used interchangeably. And so a great place to see where both meanings of the word are used in the same passage is going to be in James 1. So read with me, it's going to be on the screen from verse 2 to 17 as we go to James. And so... James is writing to these Christians and he tells them, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And that word trials, and everywhere you're going to read trial in this, in this passage, is the same word that is interpreted as temptation in the rest of the passage. And so the first half of the passage, he uses it in one sense, and then James flips, and then he uses it in another, another sense, in another meaning. He says, verse 3, for you know that the testing, that word testing again of your faith, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who generally gives it to all without reproach. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, under temptation. For when he has stood the test, same word, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, now we see how James switches. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and fully grown brings death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift, and every good gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
And so what we clearly see in the first half of this passage is that in some way, shape, or form, God actually allows circumstances to come and trials to come across our paths. And these trials, these temptations that God gives us, according to James, is a good thing. He says, count it all joy when you receive these types of temptations, these types of trials. We don't like the idea of actually being tested or being put to the test. But here's why he's saying this is a good thing. Those trials actually test our faith. And not in the sense of how much faith you have or how strong your faith is, but rather in what do you place your faith. And so here's why it becomes a good thing. What if you lived under the illusion that your faith was in Christ and in his salvation? However, secretly, even unbeknownst to you, you were placing your faith and your hope for salvation in the things around you and the people around you, even in the experiences around you. And as these trials and these troubles come and it turns up the heat of your life, what it's revealing is that actually I wasn't putting my trust in God. What a good thing. What a great thing if I discover that I wasn't really in every part of my heart hinging on Christ but in the things around me. At the moment it almost seems tough and painful but what a great thing when it reveals rather turn back to God and again put fully your trust into him. Come back, he calls you back in Christ before calamity hits. Think about how important it is when we're building a bridge, how necessary it is throughout the design and building process of that bridge that we constantly put to proof both the design of the bridge and also the materials of the bridge. Think how important it is after the bridge has been built that will hundreds of people will use it every day, cars will use it, pedestrians will use it, how important it is to first test the bridge before it actually holds human life. Go ask Heinrich that uh, was accompanying Uli and their engineering firm as they went to do annual bridge inspections. They were actually hired for this purpose, to go and inspect whether the bridge is still holding up to the rigors of nature. Why is this important? Well, we say because life is precious. And so we need to put these things to the test. Now, as if life is precious, how much more our spiritual lives how much more do we need to welcome and embrace different circumstances in our life that actually reveal that this bridge won't hold? That it's actually not up to me and my performances. I need to go back to the cross. I need to once again realize that it's not me trying to gather more faith. It's me relying more, not on my own bridge, but on the bridge that was already built by Christ. It's taking the right road. Even in Job, we see that Job says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me or tested me, I come out as gold. It's this imagery that both Job and we see later Peter also uses when he says it's like a furnace that God allows these trials to come over our lives so that our faith will be purified. That all the impurities of false and functional saviors will come to the surface so that we can deal with them. Not so that we caught out, but for our own benefit. This is a good and gracious God. That's why James goes as far as to say, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, 
when you encounter trials and temptations of various kinds. To test your faith, because that testing of faith over time and time again will produce steadfastness. A, a resilient, resolute person only securely captured by the beauty of Christ. So now we've got to ask the question, so what is Jesus then praying for when he asks of the Father, but do not lead us into temptation and deliver us from evil? Well, this is then the second part of James 1 where we see the second part of the meaning of the word temptation and trial explained. We see that the definition given here is where something or someone prompts or entices you to sin. And remember, sin is more than just doing something wrong. Sin is actually not acknowledging God, even as we spoke about it either last week or the week before. It's not acknowledging that God is the one that should get all my adoration, that God is the one that should get all my affection. God is the one in whom I should find my identity. The moment I take away my guys from God, even if I'm not actively transgressing His law, not even giving the glory that He is due, means that I'm sinning and I'm finding functional saviors. And so... That's what happens when we give in to temptation. But it's very clear in this passage that even though God sometimes allows circumstances to come around our, or come across our roads and our paths and our journey, never can God tempt us or be tempted himself. God is the definition of what it means to be good. He is pure. He is in the business of sanctifying us so that we do not sin. Sanctifying or sanctification merely means the process whereby we daily recognize more that Jesus is in fact the true God. And so this is the work of God. He just calls us more to himself. He's never in the business of letting us move away from him and sinning. Rather, this passage says that one of the culprits that actually provokes us to sin is our own sinful desires. So here's how the passage fits together. This is how we should start thinking about trials and tribulations. One, we see that God does allow difficult circumstances to be present in our lives. We see that God still keeps us within this world. And as we're in these trials and tribulations, even temptations, it's in those phases that we're in, maybe in a weakened state, we see a very real enemy come and use the opportunity of either a weakened state or because it's just a difficult patch that you're going through to further entice us to in that moment where we're at a crossroads because it's difficult now, my faith is being tested, am I going to trust in God? The other voice comes from the other side, rather go to this Rather find your enjoyment here. Rather find your salvation and the other thing. This is where we see very real enemy or enemies at work using difficult times to lure us away from God. Meaning, family, that the deliverance that we as Christians primarily need and that we're praying for, even as we're praying to God for deliverance, is not from our adverse circumstances, rather from a spiritual enticement that we are faced by evil in that moment. 
the smoke screen that we're often blinded to is to think that we're fighting the wrong battle. This situation is stealing my comfort and my joy. The only thing that I'm praying for is that God would release me or help me within this, not actually understanding that within that moment, God wants to make it clear, don't run simply to joy and comfort and to the things that make you happy. You need to come to me. On this front, it's important to say that we need a very real deliverance and guidance and leading of God because there is a great evil in this world. Whether or not you consider yourself spiritual or what you believe in this morning, there's some things that I think we can all agree on, just looking at the brokenness. The news has been horrific the last while, from rape and murder and corruption and extortion happening. We have to see that this seems way too much orchestrated for it just to be happening by coincidence. It, it really does seem that there is this greater force at work within this world trying to break things down. Evil is nonsensical. Evil doesn't by itself actually have a definition or a purpose. Rather, evil is simply the corruption of that which is good. That is the purpose of evil. Evil seeks to destroy that which is good and pure. And so, in terms of this, we see that they, we encounter evil on three different fronts. And to rightly identify them. The first front, we're not very crazy about hearing, but the first front where there is a very real enemy and evil is actually within our own sinful flesh. Even as Christians, and maybe... I'm going through this right now, but maybe you're going on a diet <laughs> and you experience that pull or just how difficult it is to fight against these things. They're like, I've got this dualism personality within myself. This is what I want to do and yet I've got these other voices in me pulling me towards KFC. <laughs> it's a very real pull. Before I know it, I'm driving, I'm in the drive through I'm like, how did I get here? Even though I'm a reformed guy, I've moved away, but uh, it happens. As Christians, we people that have been redeemed by God, we, we've been washed whiter than snow. Spiritually, we are unified with God, and yet it's almost like our flesh, our bodies has got these short-term memory loss, where we've got this desire that we want to follow God, but being part of still this fallen world and being part of still the rebellion and we can feel the breaking down of our bodies, it's almost like it's got a second voice within us. We're schizophrenic in that. And that voice is constantly just telling you, do whatever is best for yourself. You know what? Me, myself, and I, you're the king. No one can tell you what you should do. You just follow your own heart. You just do what you want to do. We'll see how that tactic goes when, he went, when we tell that to little lights. You guys just do whatever you want to do. <laughs> we'll see how quickly things turn south from there. And yet we think it's limited to them. And we've somehow evolved into these more complicated beings, not destroying our earth, not destroying our own bodies, not looking after what's been given to us. So in this we need to be 
sober-minded and recognizing that there is actually this evil within us that we are still battling or this fallenness that we're battling. Secondly, what we need to recognize as Christians, as people, is that this world is broken. Not, even, not only is the evil restricted our own flesh, but there's something about this world and other people's brokenness that has a very real effect on us. I think this is the other part where we need to be crystal clear with one another. God is not the one, even though he allows trials and tribulations, he never orchestrates death and destruction and calamity. God is a good thing. God is a good father who gives good gifts. It's through his goodness that he wants to lead us to repentance. But this world is twisted and broken. We can't even help ourselves. And thirdly, I don't know what your view of this is, but we do have a great enemy, the deceiver and all his servants. One of the greatest con artists in the devil one of his greatest ploys against the modern Christian is not to actually bring us off stride or not to uh, cause us and say, well, let's follow this other religion. The simple ploy of the enemy today is, I don't exist. I'm not real. That's the simple ploy of the enemy. And similar to what we see in the beginning, if you don't really believe that there is an enemy out there, there's no real resistance. We're not even acute to what's happening to us. And very much less obvious than maybe back in the day or in certain cultures, the poison of the enemy is working in tandem with our own flesh and with the world. It's saying, in difficult circumstances, look out for number one. You deserve this. Who are they to tell you what you should and shouldn't do? You do deserve this. You do deserve to only have happiness and love in your terms. And whatever you want. And slowly, we don't even recognize as those voices just become part of our everyday thoughts. Hasn't it been interesting, if you guys have been in relational fights or anything like that, where you go to that moment where this thought out of nowhere just comes in, it's like, why should I forgive? Why should, you know what? This person has done A, B, C, and D, and I've done all of this for them. Don't I deserve? (laughs) Just subtly turning the focus back to ourselves. Being tempted not to recognize that you're actually not the king. And and you're actually not a good ruler. You're actually the master of your own demise. There is actually a good king out there. A good father. And so the question this morning then, faced with this great evil, this great peril, Why are we still here? (laughs) Why hasn't God come back? Why hasn't he put an end to this? Jesus kind of started it, but it's teetering on the edge. Put the enemy out of their misery, Lord. (laughs) It feels like that. Why is God allowing all of these things to happen in the world right now? And we see a little bit of it as Jesus prays in John 17, right before his crucifixion. Jesus prays, the fatherly pray to his dad in heaven and he prays for us and he prays for his disciples. This is what Jesus says in verses 14 to 18. Jesus is speaking to the father and he says, I have given them, that means us, his disciples, your word, God, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We are of a different kingdom, serving a different king. However, look at this, 15. Jesus who asked, deliver us from evil, 
praise verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but in calamity, in brokenness, that you would deliver them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. 18. As you sent me into this world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus prays for our safekeeping, yet not to be removed, knowing that even as we're not removed, as we're in this environment, this is actually our purification. This is us more trusting God, more growing towards His heart, But even more than this, even more than growing our faith, we see in verse 18, it's because we have a purpose. The battle that we're fighting is not just to, you only live life once, just enjoy yourself. It's not just the hashtags, no. As Jesus was sent into this world, now he sends his disciples. The only reason why we are still alive And why he hasn't come back is because he still has a purpose for you. That he still wants to use you. That's the only reason. And it's in this process as Jesus knows himself. And as he has said before, I send you as sheep amongst the wolves that he's praying for our safekeeping. That in those moments of hardship, even as we are tested by fire, that we would not give in to the small voices, loud voices telling us to trust in something different. So how do we do this? How do we keep standing, keep fulfilling the mission of God and not give way to temptation? There's only one reason why we can do this. Read with me, and we're almost there. Mark 14, verses 32 to 36. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, I went to this garden, Gethsemane, to pray. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here a while, I need to pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Pray with me. Be with me. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, Dad, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, this circumstance from me, yet not what I will, but your will. So two reasons, family, or two ways that we can keep standing. The only way and the only reason why we can be led away from temptation, delivered from evil, is because Jesus was not delivered from evil that night. What happened on the cross was a very much taking the full brunt and authority that Satan and his cronies had of sin in the world and paying the price that we couldn't. So that by grace we are reminded and called every day to walk after him. So how is Jesus leading us out of temptation? It's almost starting the prayer again. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. A reminder that not only was the price paid back then, but his grace is active every day. And here's the great thing. Even when we actually do give in to temptation, when we actually do serve ourselves and the kingdoms of this world and our own kingdom, the grace calls us back. We are not disqualified once you've done it wrong. 
This is what keeps us going. This is what's leading us today, Christian. It is not your own effort. It's not trying you trying to build the bridge to actually get to God. It's recognizing that Jesus has overcome. He has bridged the gap. He is there. He is enthroned. No one that is in the hand of God, no will ever be left behind. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you always within me. It's the reminder of that. It is the reminder that Jesus says in John 10, in this world you will have tribulation, yet take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Christian, as we hear those words, we need to rightly embattle or take to the battlefield of these three enemies in ourselves, in the brokenness of the world and the devil. And we see the way that Jesus did this was he watched, he prayed, and he invited his friends to do that with him. We are not alone in this fight. Are you watching? Are you praying? Are you vigilant for the battle that you're involved with? Or do you simply blame it in your circumstances and not rightly seeing what's going on? This is the battle for your soul. What the enemy is doing is giving you the comfort Comfortable suburban life is just just relax, just enjoy, just coast until the end of days. And so for our own sinful flesh, we need to develop a distrust, a skepticism of what we tell ourselves. You know that voice in your own head? We need a healthy skepticism knowing that everything that I'm actually telling myself might not be true. I'm even fighting against myself. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore, whoever thinks he is standing securely should watch out that he doesn't fall. No temptation that is unusual for human beings, but God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. Indeed, along with the temptation, he will also provide a way out that you may be able to endure it. And so, my dear friends, keep running away from idolatry. Keep running away from these things that you're putting your trust in and finding your identity in. And so the first question is, when we battle the self, do you know what your own idols are? There's no way that I can give all the examples up here. Do you know, what is that one thing, man, this is what trips me up. This, man, this thing just keeps on getting me. I don't know if it's food or drink or relationships, retail therapy. I don't, I don't know if it's just screen time, maybe. I don't know if it's just a claim from people or just being that person in the friendship group. What is it for you? And now the follow-up question to Jesus' tactic how are you involving the people around you to run from that idolatry? How are you, similar to Jesus, watching, praying, asking those to do with you? Do your closest friends, your confidants, your DNA group type people, do they know what your idols are? Do they know what questions they should ask you? Those difficult questions that we don't want asked. Have you invited someone in the inner door? And why, why is that difficult? Well, I want to keep up appearances. I don't really want people to know this about me. That's why we start by leading out of temptation by receiving grace. If God has forgiven me, surely those around me can see that I'm actually a broken person. Secondly, we see that this world is broken as well. And similarly to developing a healthy distrust of ourselves, we should develop a distrust of the world as well. 
the world is sending very loud gospel messages every day, what to trust in and what to follow. The best-selling books, the biggest houses, the jobs, the comfortable life, the just being true to yourself. Do we have a healthy distrust of the world as well? And again, I'm one to actually promote culture and the thing that different cultures bring to the table. However, we should start recognizing that things are broken, not working as they should. And so even as we don't want to disregard everything about our culture, no, God created culture, he created good, we need to have a healthy distrust of how things are doing. Or are we simply just buying what's being sold? And lastly, family, we need to recognize that there is a very real enemy. Walking around, seeking to crush, kill, destroy, corrupt anything that is good. It's Satan and his dominion, demon, demonic oppression. I like just saying that and seeing people's reactions. Like, oh, you're allowed to say that in this church? Yes. Um, not being possessed by a demon, that is, we are possessed by the Holy Spirit. So not demonic possession, but demonic oppression. These demons that come and then in your darkest times tell you there's no way out. Hurt yourself. Do this. It's those demons that are secretly just coming and just whispering the thoughts, the deepest things of our hearts that we struggle with. Over and over, giving subliminal messaging out there. You can find happiness outside of this marriage. If only you had this or that. We need to recognize that there is a very real enemy that we're battling against. And lastly, family, even though Satan is a strong man, Jesus is stronger. He is overcome. Amen. Oh, Father God, we want to come to you. We want to praise you this morning. We want, to, we want to confess maybe in comfortableness in sunny South Africa that we have somehow come under the impression that we are not fighting a battle, that it's only those outside of our walls, outside of our boundaries that are fighting this battle, that don't have an, or that have a very real enemy that is seeking to destroy them. We've already overcome on this side. We have so many Christians and churches. We're doing okay. Father, help us that we're not living apathetically, simply trusting ourselves. We pray even this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper that we would once again proclaim your grace. We pray that we would physically taste and see it, Father, that you have overcome. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.